0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Thank you for braving the call to join us for this discussion. My name is Juan Carlos Hidalgo. I'm a policy analyst on Latin America at Cato Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. For over half a century, Washington has tried to bring about democracy to Cuba by imposing tough economic sanctions on the island. Indeed, UN sanctions on Cuba are the most restrictive sanctions it imposes on any country, including Iran, North Korea, and Syria. But instead of weakening the communist regime in Havana, these sanctions have actually empowered it by providing it with a powerful propaganda tool. For example, Cuban dissident Joanny Sanchez has called the trade embargo the regime's excuse for all its failures and pointed out that its existence has undermined the work of dissidents on the island. On the international level, the Castro dictatorship has has skillfully presented the sanctions as a heavy-handed effort of the American Goliath to subdue the Cuban David. Instead of isolating Cuba, the embargo and travel ban have isolated Washington diplomatically on this topic. Last year, a non binding resolution calling for the end of the embargo received 188 votes in the United Nations General Assembly. Only two countries voted against the measure the United States and Israel. Latin American countries spend more time criticizing U.S. policy toward Cuba than calling out the island's regime on its human rights. Record. Realizing how counterproductive this approach has been, President Obama announced last December that his administration will seek to restore diplomatic ties with Cuba. The president also used his executive authority to relax some of the sanctions on traveling and trading with the island. Still, President Obama's policy shift toward Cuba has been met with a hostile reception by some on Capitol Hill. Senator Marco Rubio called it a concession to tyranny, Speaker John Boehner said that it will embolden all state sponsors of terrorism. A rare voice within the GOP in favor of President Obama's Cuba policy is Senator Jeff Flake. Indeed, Senator Flake has been pushing for ending economic sanctions on Cuba since he was first elected to Congress in 2000. In 2002, Cato hosted then freshman Congressman Flake for the first time in a policy forum titled will U.S. trade with Cuba promote freedom or subsidize tyranny? Senator Flake's decade-old crusade to end the trade embargo and travel ban on Cuba puzzles many of his colleagues. I can't quite figure out what's driving him. Senator Robert Menendez is quoted yesterday in the New York Times in this uh, piece about uh, Senator Flake that I would recommend you reading. Well, it's certainly not Arizona's trade interest with Cuba. I tried to look at the trade figures, farm products that uh, Arizona exports to Cuba, and I couldn't find uh, the number. Or isn't either that there is a sizable expatriate Cuban community in Phoenix pushing for change? But I'll let Senator Flay explain exactly what is driving him and why he is, has been such a leading contrarian voice within the Republican Party on Cuban policy. But we also want to hear from him about the future of this new policy toward Cuba in the 114 Congress. Is there a silent majority of members of Congress that agrees on ending embargo and travel ban? Can we expect? any legislation on this topic reaching President Obama's desk in the next couple of years. Let me introduce Senator Flake. He's a fifth-generation Arizonan who was raised on a cattle ranch in Snowflake, Arizona. Prior to his election to the US Senate, he served in the House of Representatives from 2001 to 2013. As a member of the US Senate, Flake is uh, sitting on the Judiciary Committee, the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, and the Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, He served a Mormon mission in Zimbabwe and South Africa, where he learned to speak Afrikaans. Senator Flake graduated from Brigham Young University, where he received a B.A. in International Relations and an M.A. in Political Science. In the late 1980s, he went back to Africa, where he worked as Executive Director of the Foundation for Democracy in Namibia. In this role, Senator Flake helped monitor Namibia's independence process and saw the nation usher in freedom and democracy. And it was in this position where he first came in contact with Cuba since Cuba's military was involved in the Namibian War of Independence. In 1992, Mr. Flake moved back to Arizona where he was named Executive Director of the World Water Institute. And if I remember well, in your first Cato Forum, you referred to the World Water Institute the Cato of the West. So let me uh, welcome Senator Flake.
1: Thank you, Juan Carlos. I appreciate that. It's nice to be here. Um, this is a, a kind of a home away from home, I think. Given the philosophy, I enjoyed being in the Goldwater Institute, and uh, I did often refer to it as a, a Cato of the West. And I appreciate uh, what you do, and I rely on a lot of the material that you that you uh, the research that you do and and uh, the issues you promote. Um, anyway, well done, and I appreciate it. Well, talking about Cuba, you ask why I'm interested in Cuba. Uh, as you mentioned, Arizona doesn't have a lot of ag trade, uh, they don't want to buy cactus in, uh, in Cuba. There's, there's not a real reason there. Um, I like to tell people I took a poll among Cuban Americans in uh, Arizona, and both of them said, just move right ahead. We like what you're doing. <laughs> so, But to me, it's, it's just been really an issue of freedom. Uh, Americans should be able to travel wherever they want, unless there's a compelling national security reason. And there hasn't been with Cuba for a long time long time. So that that kind of is what drove it, and I saw that those that were interested in this and those that were involved were those who had a particular interest in it. Uh, They were from a community that had ties or whatever else, and I thought that somebody ought to speak for an ordinary American who simply wants to travel. But uh, uh, when uh, when I got to Washington then in 2001, one of the first pieces of legislation I offered was to Uh, legislation to lift the travel ban. And since our leadership wouldn't allow it to come to the floor, uh, we had to do an appropriations strategy and and attach an amendment to an appropriations bill where your leadership can't stop you from doing that. And I remember the first time I did it, I was uh, opposed by uh, uh, mostly Republicans then. And a a Republican, uh, a Cuban-American stood up after I had spoke and I thought I'd given some pretty good reasons why we ought to lift the travel ban and (laughs) He stood up and said, the gentleman from Arizona just wants to lift the travel ban so he can drink mojitos on the beach in Cuba. And uh, and this was a, a strange thing that happened. A, a, a Democrat, uh, the chairman of the, or the ranking minority member of the Appropriations Committee, David Obie, stood and asked that those words be taken down or stricken from the record. Uh, you're not allowed to slander any member on the House floor. And so they, they stopped the process and they have the clerk read through what was said, so they slander you once again, I guess. But uh, it's kind of an interesting process. Uh, but then they stop, and then the, if the member comes and apologizes, then you can go on, and he did. But I went over to Dave Obey afterwards, and I said, uh, just out of interest, you know, it's kind of irregular for a Democrat to protect a Republican in that fashion. Why'd you do it? He said, ah, Flake, I know you're Mormon. I know you don't drink. <laughs> said, I'm just, pr- I'm protecting your honor. <laughs> so, I, I appreciated that. But, uh, but anyway, there obviously isn't, uh, 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 you know, there is no consensus on this. Uh, some people in, in, in my party and in the other party believe differently. Uh, we're busy trying to count up votes because we've just introduced uh, the bill again to lift the travel ban completely. To see where we are in the Senate, and we feel pretty good about where we are. But uh, there are some who have different opinions. Um, it was uh, wonderful to to take part last month uh, in a quick mission to Cuba to pick up Alan Gross. As you know, Alan Gross was in Cuba uh, as a prisoner for five years, and uh, through a quite elaborate uh, spy swap, not involving uh, Alan Gross, he was released on humanitarian grounds. But part of the same Package in part of the same time frame Uh, myself and uh, Pat Leahy and Chris Van Hollen uh, Were asked to go to uh, Andrews Air Force Base at uh, 430 a.m To catch a flight to Cuba and uh, I couldn't tell my wife where I was going I couldn't tell my staff Uh, Nobody could know because it had to be kept uh, very quiet Uh, two other planes took off from other locations carrying different uh, cargo Um, and it felt like a Tom Clancy novel. It was great. <laughs> but uh, we went uh, down to Cuba. We were on the ground for a total of 31 minutes. Uh, we were able to uh, see Alan Gross reunited with his wife, Judy, and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Uh, when we got up in the air and when we entered uh, American airspace, the pilot announced that we were now in American airspace, and Alan Gross stood up and went like this, and then... Uh, Breathe deeply like three or four times and it was just a a great thing to be a part of but uh, rather than go through a laundry list of of, uh, Why uh, I think we ought to lift the travel ban and frankly the entire embargo. I would do the whole thing uh, I thought that I would just go through a a few myths that are out there uh, That are often brought up by the opponents of the new policy in Cuba Uh, the myth one that I'll address is uh, don't change a thing We have the Castro regime just where we want them. They're on the ropes. They won't last much longer. Now, this policy has been going for 50 years. And and, and no doubt, uh, the uh, Cuban economy is not in a good place. They're heavily reliant on subsidized oil coming from Venezuela. Um, They're not doing well. The average wage is about $20 a month. Uh, Their economy is in, in tough shape. But they have been through worse, if you can believe it. Particularly in the early 90s, uh, when the Soviet Union uh, disintegrated and those subsidies stopped. They went through what they called the special period. And it was quite a time. Uh, Conditions now are tough, but they don't approach what went on during that time. And still the regime lasted. People will say, well, uh, Raul Castro is there now. Uh, When he goes, there will be no more Castros in office, and then things will change. Not necessarily. I don't think we ought to count on that. Uh, this is a system that may endure beyond, or will endure beyond the Castros, and, unless uh, we find a more effective way uh, to influence it. Um, the Myth number two, that we have to continue the isolation of Cuba, isolation for one, isolation for all kind of attitude. I would uh, simply point out that uh, isolation uh, of Cuba is kind of a myth. Uh, we are... Cuba's fifth largest trading partner. Uh, since uh, the year 2000 or so, we've been trading a lot, particularly in agricultural products. Uh, at a peak of 2007 or 8, of about uh, I think seven eight hundred million dollars. It's now just over four hundred million dollars. Some of the changes uh, that, with financing have brought that down a bit, uh, but there's a lot of U.S. trade. Um, with Cuba Cuba obviously trades with just about every other country in the world as well and uh, I I should mention that uh, One figure I found interesting a full quarter of Alabama's agricultural revenue comes from exports to Cuba so when you look at different pockets around the country, there's, there's a lot of trade going on and a lot of people relying on it. And you have a, a, a lot of people in the farm community who, who want to see that uh, obviously increased. Outside of trade, we also have a lot of people visiting Cuba. Uh, since the president loosened restrictions on Cuban-American travel in 2009, uh, visits uh, last year were up at about 400,000 a year. 400,000 mostly Cuban Americans uh, traveling back to the island sometimes several times Uh, So that has been significant. I I should mention that uh, those who say that now we're they're gonna turn back the president's new policy loosening travel again even more so uh, Many of them said the same thing in 2009. We're not gonna let this stand We're gonna turn that back and nobody you don't hear any of those voices who said that uh, willing to turn back Cuban-American travel, because once people get a little more freedom, they want even more of it. And that's just uh, a, an axiom I think that we can all rely on. And when travel happens, uh, then it's, ter- it's tough to turn it back. So uh, I think that uh, certainly, uh, certainly we uh, we ought to uh, recognize that Cuba is better off because of the travel. And uh, and we're better off because of it as well. I, I should mention that part of my motivation uh, is to have more Cubans exposed to American values. And that happens when more Americans travel. And part of my reasoning also is to expose Americans to what's happening in Cuba. Uh, under the policy that we've had for so many years, it's been easy for uh, movie stars and, and others to travel to Cuba, and so you have Kevin Costner and Oliver Stone and others uh, going to Cuba and then talking about uh, when they come back, this land flowing with milk and honey, and and uh, wonderful healthcare, education, science, uh, all these wonderful things happening in Cuba. And how Fidel Castro is such a genius. And I've always thought that if Bob from Peoria went down to Cuba, he'd have a different reaction. And uh, and everybody ought to be able to travel and see what happens. Uh, when government controls not just the commanding heights of the economy, but the entire economy. It's a sobering experience, and, uh, and I think that more Americans ought to be exposed to it. I was on a trip one time uh, to Poland, and we met with Lech Fuenza, and that was a great treat. He's a wonderful, incredible man, given his history. And uh, we were having a conversation, just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he, he stopped the conversation. He said, I just don't understand your policy toward Cuba. And, uh, and my ears perked up on that. He said, "You have a museum of socialism 90 miles away, and you don't let people go to it. <laughs> they ought to go. They ought to experience it." Uh, I thought it was an interesting, uh, interesting comment coming from him. Myth number three: Anything we do will only line the pockets of the regime. People will point out that as more Americans travel, because the Cuban government uh, owns, uh, you know. The, the you know the military is in charge of uh, resorts and hotels, and is so enmeshed in the economy there that any money that goes to Cuba, any travel, will simply line the pockets of the regime. There is no doubt that, uh, and, and anybody who tries to say that no money will go to the Cuban government when Americans travel, is not telling you the truth. Sure, some of it will, a lot of it will, but also uh, for those to say that all money from travel. And economic activity or anything that happens in Cuba only benefits the regime are equally not telling you the truth. Uh, You know how you know every communist system uh, has leakage, seepage. You know you talk about the works of uh, Hernando de Soto talking about uh, you know the mystery of capital, a wonderful book he wrote about how there's just uh, underground economies everywhere. That's certainly true in Cuba. Uh, plus some of the changes uh, that have taken place in Cuba officially. Now, after the the or during the special period in the '90s, the Cuban government relaxed a lot of restrictions, allowing people to start private uh, restaurants. When that special period kind of ended, the Cuban government cracked down again and uh, revoked a lot of those licenses and uh, and pulled back. And there's no guarantee that they won't do so again. But I can tell you. Uh, right now, according to, to a lot of research, about 20% of the 5 million person workforce in Cuba uh, can be classified as in the private sector. That's an increase of about 150% just over the last couple of years. Uh, the Cuban government has recognized that their their, their uh, ability to run restaurants and other private businesses is extremely inefficient, and they have they simply cannot prepare or provide for the entire population. So they have allowed many to go outside of it, barbershops, restaurants, and other businesses. Uh, their classification of, I think, 201 occupations that now can happen outside of the government. And uh, my sense in traveling to Cuba over the last couple of years, unlike the previous years that I traveled there, is that these gains in the private sector are more irreversible, far more difficult for the, for the Cuban government to reverse, particularly because a lot of these gains have been because of private investment allowed under the president's uh, policy in 2009, allowing for virtually unlimited remittances, now they are unlimited, Uh, going uh, from Cuban Americans to family members and others on the island. Uh, So when Americans will travel there, uh, there will be benefits to to ordinary Cubans. Uh, And not just that, not just uh, in terms of money, and goods taken down. Uh, but uh, we've had these programs, uh, so-called democracy programs, we spend about $20 million a year, uh, one of which was a program that got Alan Gross put in jail, uh, trying to, uh, great goal, trying to get more Cubans connected to the internet and exposed to information on the outside. Uh, but my notion has always been that uh, if you allowed completely unfettered travel to the island, that you would accomplish that goal far more quickly, far more efficiently. You could probably accomplish in a couple of weeks what you've been trying to do for 20 years in terms of allowing and giving access to to Cubans to information and and technology. Um, Myth number four, that uh, we got nothing out of this latest round of concessions uh, by the Obama administration that uh, we we shouldn't be making concessions to the Cuban government without getting something in return. I've always had a a problem, particularly on the travel side, with that concept that we should seek concessions on the other side by allowing our citizens the right to travel. Uh, It's not something you seek concessions for. This prohibition, this sanction that we've had on travel has been on our own citizens, uh, not on Cubans. So the notion that we should expect something in return for that... Uh, just doesn't, uh, doesn't make sense to me. Uh, but uh, the first, uh, the, another premise that that has is that somehow we're doing just what the, Cubans, the Cuban government wants. Now, that may be, and maybe today, it may not be what they want tomorrow. I've never been fully convinced that uh, a free and unfettered travel is what the Cuban government really wants. I know they would like certainly the revenue that comes with it but they really fear the influence that comes with it as well. And so uh, you may see a, a situation where the Cuban government now steps up and really <coughs> starts to screen and tries to pick who comes to the island, who travels. Uh, they, they want tourists. They want people who just go bake in the sun, but not people who will meet with civil society there or, or, or take flash drives or, or whatever else. But I've always thought uh, that if somebody's going to limit my travel as an American, it ought to be a communist, somebody not from my government here. So they, they may decide to impose their own restrictions. That's their province. That's what they ought to do. Uh, but, it, but it shouldn't be our government. Um, I uh, am also unconvinced uh, that, the federal, or that the Cuban government is anxiously awaiting a fully functioning diplomatic mission in Cuba. Uh, that will allow us to press on, uh, on human rights issues and other things like we really can't do now. Uh, to have, uh, uh, you know, one meeting a year between the Coast Guard and the Cuban Coast Guard on drug interdiction issues or one talk every six months on migration issues just doesn't cut it. If we want to, to influence and, uh, and have, <coughs> have an influence with the Cuban government, it's more easily done when we have full diplomatic relations. There's also a misunderstanding about what we have in Cuba right now. Some in my party will see it as a budget issue. Do we really want to spend that money to put up an embassy and, and everything else just to have diplomatic recognition in Cuba, our diplomatic presence in Cuba? I should note that right now there are 51 employees, the State Department full, full-time employees. Um, we have an interest section uh, right along the Molochon. Uh, that used to function as an embassy, uh, 47,000 square feet, I believe. We have a gorgeous residence that we've owned, I think, since the 1930s. And so uh, it's, it's more changing the nameplate uh, than it is actually setting up uh, a full new diplomatic presence. And also, I think that Americans uh, who are traveling to Cuba legally, as more of them will be doing, and doing business legally in Cuba should have the protections that are afforded to Americans traveling elsewhere in the world. We need effective diplomatic representation more in hostile countries than we do in friendly countries. And, and Americans who, who are, like I said, are traveling or doing business uh, should know that uh, we have a fully functioning diplomatic presence there. But, uh, but in, in closing, um, people are asking where I think this will go. Um, is there support in Congress to go take the next step? Uh, In order to lift the uh, travel ban, Congress needs to act. Um, In order to lift the embargo, Congress needs to act. Um, I I don't think that uh, we're in a position now where the entire embargo will be lifted. But in terms of the travel ban, I think uh, by this time next year, you're likely to to be able to go on Delta.com or JetBlue's website and book a flight directly to Havana, scheduled service, which you can't do now. Once that happens... Once that happens, I think the game is over. People will say, why in the world are we trying to tell Americans, well, you can go for this purpose but not that purpose, or not so much of that purpose but this purpose, and I don't think that our Office of Foreign Assets Control at Treasury, which has a lot of other important functions right now, like maintaining sanctions on Iran and on Russia, uh, needs to be spending a big chunk of their time and resources chasing down tourists, or others who might be conducting some tourism in Cuba. It just doesn't make sense. So I think with regard to travel, uh, if, if the airlines are able to enter into a civil aviation agreement with the Cuban government and direct flight start, uh, then that, uh, we're, we're very close to the end of the travel ban. And once that happens as well, uh, the Cuban government, I believe, will realize they just don't have the infrastructure Uh, to take advantage of tourism or other travel that will come from the U.S. And that will cause them to think, all right, what are we going to do to get that investment? Certainly, their investment code that they have right now, their foreign investment code, isn't sufficient. And that will cause them to to think of things like due process, rights to contract, and other things that are anathema to communism. And and they'll have to make a choice. Uh, Do we open up or not? Uh, I'm not uh, suggesting that I know or anybody knows what their reaction will be. But uh, we're in a better position, I believe, uh, to promote freedom and democracy in Cuba by exercising a little more freedom ourselves. And uh, with that, I I thank you for all you do. I thank uh, Cato for its uh, position on this issue over the years and the invitation to speak here today. So thanks.
0: Thank you, you, Senator. Um, You mentioned at your at the beginning of your remarks that uh, the U.S. government should not infringe on the right of Americans to travel unless there is a pressing national security uh, reason for, for doing so. And although Cuba doesn't pose a security threat to the United States, according to leading intelligence experts, it is still listed as a state sponsor of terrorism by the State Department. And some observers insist that it remains a threat to U.S. security, because of his ties with Russia, Iran, and other unsavory regimes. So we're pleased to have Karmijan from the Center for Strategic and International Studies who will put these concerns into context and present the national security arguments for engaging Cuba. Karmijan is the director of the Americas program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. From this position, he analyzes the Western Hemisphere challenges from politics to trade, to security and tech innovation, Carr joined CSIS from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where he served over a decade as Senator Richard Lugar's senior professional staff for Latin America. In that capacity, he traveled extensively to the region to work with foreign governments and other influential stakeholders. Prior to his Senate work, Carr served at at the U.S. Department of Commerce as a special assistant to the deputy secretary at the Cuban Affairs Bureau of the Department of State, and at the US Embassy in Madrid, Spain. Carve is a native speaker of Spanish uh, because was partly raised in Chile where his mother is from. He received his BA from the University of New York at Albany and holds an MA degrees from American University and Columbia University. He's also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Help me welcome, Carve Mission.
2: Well, um, thank you. Thank you for having me here. Um, it's really great to be here. Uh, I'm honored to share the stage with Senator Flake. Uh, this morning when I, when I got up, I was getting dressed, uh, and my wife because I really don't wear white shirts that much. And she says, why are you wearing a white shirt? You know, why, do you, why, you, why are you so focused on, on how you look today? I said, well, I'm sharing, the, I'm sharing a stage with Senator Flake, and I have to contrast with his radiant smile. Um, so uh, hopefully uh, I've been able to do that Um, and uh, I'm particularly interested or happy to be here at Cato because I I, I share uh, uh, the commitment to the values for which Cato stands for Uh, this organization stands for uh, individual liberty limited government and free markets and that's something that I particularly hold dear so I'm really really happy that you invited me um so you're all here uh, because you know about the president's new policy towards Cuba and because you want to hear more about what could happen, what it means, and why it's important. I think the senator really touched on a lot of issues having to do with why uh, or, or he debunked a lot of the myths with regards to this policy. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, you have to look at this from the holistic perspective, and, and it's clearly uh, uh, a move that I think serves the U.S. interests way more than than, uh, the uh, policy that we had previously. Um, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try not to get too bogged down in the details of exactly how this policy works. I think all of you know uh, a little bit about the policy. And I'm going to focus on the national security arguments in favor of engaging Cuba. So... um, Before we get started into why this policy is a net positive, I just want to mention one big caveat, and it is that I I do believe that the policy change is positive, um, but that doesn't mean that concerns over the change aren't valid. Uh, I think they very much are. The issue is a deeply personal one. For so many people, Cuban-Americans in particular, whose families have suffered through the ill effects of the Castro brothers regime for some time. And many of those people are angry about this change. That anger is understandable, and it comes from a place of deep hurt and deep loss. Uh, You mentioned that I grew up in Chile. Yeah, I grew up in Chile under dictatorship under Pinochet. And many relatives that I have, and I had a very sort of divided family ideologically. Uh, I had people that supported Pinochet, and I had people that were vehement uh, opposed to Pinochet, and they had to leave the country. So whenever you have to leave the country because of your views, it's very painful, and I think it's something that's very similar to, uh, to what's happening with Cuba. Uh, most importantly, I think it's important to make the distinction that even though these feelings are justified, They don't necessarily serve as the most relevant with regards to defining the most effective policies to improve human rights and democracy or advance U.S. national interests in Cuba or elsewhere. And it's on that latter idea that I'd like to focus my remarks today. So why is this new policy in our national interest? I think the logic follows uh, this way. On the one hand, the U.S. is facing a series of serious threats around the world, and they're coming from everywhere. Russian expansionism, Iran's nuclear interests, Venezuela's chaotic decline and the regional implications of that decline, ISIL's large and growing presence in the Middle East and beyond. These are huge issues and that is really the context of what uh, you know, the Cuba reform or the Cuba shift found itself in. For a long time, for decades, any of us in this room could have made an argument for Cuba to be included on that list. Not so long ago, Cuba was effective in exporting its revolution abroad in African countries, you know, from your experience in Africa, um, as well as providing key material support to the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, to Allende in Chile, to name a few examples, and it was working hand-in-glove with Soviet intelligence services during the Cold War. Uh, But today, Cuba is a country with a crippled economy and a failing political system. Lyndon Johnson is famous for saying, and excuse my... French here, my language here, that it's better to have your opponents inside your tent pissing out than outside of your tent pissing in. Normalization has the potential for bringing Cuba inside our tent at a time when they are vulnerable, and most importantly, when it serves U.S. interests. So despite Cuba's predictable hesitations, it would be pissing out. But what does that really mean, and how is engaging Cuba helpful for uh, a broader context for the United States? Cuba's two closest allies are Venezuela and Russia. Venezuela has been on a steady descent into political and economic chaos since Hugo Chavez's death, and Cuba just made friends with the pair's regional nemesis, the United States. So it seems that Cuba now has a fallback plan should Venezuela collapse, and Venezuela in turn is more on its own than ever before. Russia is seriously struggling. Despite its grandstanding on the international scene and its efforts to antagonize the United States, its economy is in shambles, and recovery doesn't seem to be on the horizon. Since the early days of the Cuban Revolution, Cuba has been Russia's steady foothold in Latin America, just 90 miles from Florida, and now that foothold seems shaky at best. And to make matters worse, both of these countries' oil-driven economies was further crippled by this year's plummeting oil prices. So Cuba hasn't just decided to play nice with the US. It's done so at a time when it hurts its traditional allies the most. And as a result, it provided evidence that our traditional antagonists were weaker. That Cuba would agree to enter talks about normalization with the US now is proof that Venezuela and Russia are clearly losing their ability to project power to advance their objectives. But it doesn't end with that. This is good for U.S. interests for another reason, too. For such a long time, U.S. policy has been to affect change in Cuba. The promotion of democratic values, the respect for human rights, through isolation. And after 50 years, Cuba hardly looks any different. There's another theory for how to affect change, one based on engagement. The theory basically says that the most effective way to end authoritarianism and injustice is to shine a light on it and clear view for all to see. That's part of what the administration has done through this new policy as well. Rather than isolating Cuba and, in effect, turning a blind eye on the very aspects of that system, the U.S. hopes to change, we have a brand-new framework, one where, in theory, everything is on the table for us to see. On that note, the release of the 53 dissidents that were part of the U.S. negotiation in my view, received a lot of attention, more attention than they would have received otherwise around the world, uh, compared to other similar instances when Cuba had jailed or detained dissidents. All eyes are on Cuba now, and the pressure for reform will only keep on building more and more. And that's a powerful idea. And you need to look no further for proof of the effectiveness of that approach than Cuba's trepidation regarding moving forward. I think the senator mentioned that. The two governments came together to announce the restoration of diplomatic ties in December. And just weeks later, lightning speed, in my view, uh, when dealing with government bureaucracy in particular, the U.S. had released a comprehensive set of new regulations governing U.S. dealings with Cuba. Not so surprisingly, Cuba's response has been to tap the brakes a little bit, right, to slow it down. Uh, The Cuban government has thrown around ideas that many Americans balk at, immediately closing Guantanamo, taking the nature of the Cuban political system uh, off the table, etc., when discussing where the relationships might go, moving the goalposts, Uh, and some people have wondered if this means that recent efforts have been in vain. I don't think so. Uh, To assume that change would be swift in Cuba is frankly naive, and it's based on a fundamental misunderstanding of the Cuban system. The lion's share of that system, uh, its legitimacy, is derived directly from its existence. Cuba is a stalwart reminder of resistance to the U.S. influence or to U.S. influence in the region, especially for Latin America's left, who has traditionally vilified the United States. So we've taken that off of the table. So for Cuba to change, it means to lose that legitimacy regionally, and that. The last concept here uh, is why the development is so momentous, because of the ripple effects in changing the tone in the region. But it also means something bilaterally. It's tempting for a lot of folks to say that maybe the U.S. didn't get enough from the deal, that maybe we should have pushed for more, uh, that maybe we gave in to Cuba's demands too easily. But for the first time in a century, we brought them to the table and we're hammering out our path towards normalization, And yes, in short term, it does extend the Cuban government's hold on power. But it's destined to change. It's inevitable. The more goods, services, and people from the U.S. go to the island, the more the Cuban government's control is eroded. The very idea threatens their revolution, their existence, and their leadership. The administration was smart enough to take this policy approach while they were ahead and to know that, however, sound further aspirations for democratic compromise, human rights uh, protections, and any other number of goals uh, are on the way. But what we were able to do was break the 50-year logjam. Clearly, this new policy isn't the end all. Rather, it's the start of a process in the bilateral relationship. This approach has the potential to be impactful, even transformational, for the advancement of liberty on the island and for for US interests in the region. Thank
0: you. Thank you, Carl. Now let's open the floor for questions. Um, Please raise your hand, (laughs) wait for the mic, um, and identify yourself and the organization uh, you work for. Uh, We're going to start from here.
3: Hi, Rachel Oswald, reporter of CQ Roll Call. Senator, could you talk a little bit more about the timeline you said for the travel ban? You mentioned that you foresee in a year that American Airlines will be flying to Cuba, but does
2: that mean that the travel ban has then been lifted by Congress? And also, do you, um, uh, can you talk a little bit about support for the bill within the Foreign Relations Committee?
1: Um, uh, I know you have a couple of Republican um, co-sponsors for it, but Um, have you gotten any other feedback from members on the committee about the bill? Thank you. Um, with regard to the first question, is this working okay? Yeah. Yes. Um, is, uh, you know, direct flights, uh, from the airlines, is that contingent on Congress lifting the, the rest of the travel ban? No, it isn't. Um, right now, there's nothing, uh, no regulations of ours restrict, uh, US airlines from entering into a civil aviation agreement with Cuba. And having direct flights, and so that that will happen regardless of what the Congress does or doesn't do, and I I think it will just uh, speed the uh, speed the recognition by those in Congress. If we haven't lifted the travel ban completely by then, that it's it's basically a moot point. So uh, yeah, it doesn't rely on that. In terms of uh, where the support is, we have four Republicans, four Democrats uh, who our original co-sponsors on the Lift the Travel Ban bill that we introduced last week. Uh, we'll be adding uh, several more Republicans in the coming weeks. Uh, so I, I don't want to speak out of school, and I'm still in, uh, talking to a number of them. A number of them are haven't made up their mind yet, but have an open mind on this, and, uh, so, and are looking at events uh, as they occur. So I don't want to uh, name names, but we will have other supporters as well. Senator, I'm Barry Wood, economics columnist. I was in Cuba last month. And I wonder if you'd comment about the International Monetary Fund, the likelihood of Cuba rejoining. Because they've just introduced uh, new uh, CUP notes this year, uh, this month, uh, three days ago, much bigger denominations. And they say they want to unify the exchange rates, these two exchange rates. And it seems to me that it's very unlikely they could make this unification of the two monies work unless they had some backup from the IMF. I wonder if the United States, the Treasury, if you've learned anything about the government dropping its opposition to
2: Cuba rejoining.
1: I have not, but I would punt that one to Carl. Carl uh, probably has more expertise in that area and has been following it closer than I have.
2: Sure. Um, this conversation, this question has come up before. The question is if they can adhere to the criteria that the IMF has of openness, uh, of sharing their uh, the particulars that have to do with their economy, which they really haven't been that open with. Uh, if they would be supportive of uh, more predictability with regards to trade within country, uh, between countries in the region and with its trading partners, really the ball's in their court. And one of the things that the senator said that I think was really important was sort of the ripple effects that this normalization can have. It's forcing them to deal with all of these questions right now. Uh, the, the issues that are gonna come up uh, as a result of more travel, the issues that are gonna come up as a result of having closer relations with the United States and having to deal with upper and mid-level bureaucrats day to day, it's gonna push them to be more transparent. Uh, We're going to require a a level of accountability that I don't think they're used to, Uh, and this issue is in line with that. To join a multilateral organization, financial organization, you have to meet their criteria, and the criteria is very clear, Uh, and um, I think putting that on the table is a good thing, Um, but we have to yet see how willing they are to really be part of uh, sort of the multilateral finance, economic, and trade system. Well said. Uh, Gerald Chandler, I want to thank you both for coming. Uh, Could you explain to me why we need to negotiate anything? Why can't we just unilaterally say uh, we'll send an an ambassador whenever you want it and uh, we'll have an embassy as soon as you allow us to do it?
1: Well, I think some of what is being discussed... Negotiations that go on with any country, Uh, there are international diplomatic protocols that uh, we follow that allow allow, uh, unlimited travel, Uh, for example, outside of Havana. Right now, our diplomats are formally restricted to Havana, as are Cuban diplomats uh, formally restricted to the D.C. area. That obviously has to change. A diplomatic pouch uh, you're able to send material into Cuba without the Cuban government seeing it uh, directly to the embassy. those are things that uh, a formal uh, you know when you have a formal diplomatic uh, presence there has to has to happen that 's one uh, concern that uh, Marco Rubio has raised. He said we don 't want to fund a fake embassy as as he puts it and uh, and there that is a good point. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, and, and they're busy surveying other uh, uh, diplomatic missions in Cuba uh, to see what arrangements they have in that regard. But it obviously is not acceptable um, to have an arrangement uh, with Cuba that we don't have with other countries in terms of allowing them more access to our embassy or allowing them to open uh, classified uh, documents that come in. You simply can't allow that. And so those are the discussions that are going on right now.
0: I have a follow-up question. Uh- we, we saw the, the statements gave, uh, given by uh, Raul Castro a couple of weeks ago where he, uh, as Carr mentioned, that he moved the post. Now he's talking about returning Guantanamo, uh, uh, having the U.S. compensate Cuba for 40 years of so-called blockade, uh, not, not, not mentioning stopping, the, stopping Radio Martí from, from broadcasting to the island. I mean, he keeps raising the bill for the, in these negotiations. Uh, it looks like they want to sabotage these talks. You've been to Cuba night times. Uh, you talk to them. Are, are they genuine when, when they say they want to engage the United States?
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> there is a history here, and that's uh, why I've said uh, that, you know, we ought to take action based on our national interest and our national security, not trying to divine what the Cuban government wants, because I'm not sure what they want. Uh, they they talk, you know, they, they blame us for everything, in this embargo, including the travel ban, but... Uh, When we've been close to normalizing relations or lifting the travel ban before, they've taken actions, uh, whether it's a shoot-down to the brothers to the rescue plane or the jailing of 75 dissidents, actions that provoked and got people saying, you know, we can't move ahead. So we really don't know. My guess is uh, that, you know, a lot of this is just bluster that, you know, there are claims against the Cuban government, certainly in terms of property, Uh, a few billion dollars' worth, and uh, my guess is they're trying to throw something up on the other side, saying that we ought to be compensated for the costs of the embargo. Uh, but I think we ought to pay a lot less attention to what's said uh, by the Cuban government and uh, to see what comes out of the negotiations.
2: Yeah, on, on that issue, um, I, I think it's important to, to, um, to note that they're responding to internal pressures too that the Cuban government is divided on what course to take with the United States and that there are uh, fidelistas that um, really don't agree with the posture that was taken by Raul, as well as those who are reformists. So I think that they are also trying to figure out what the course forward is. And I would just uh, mention, as I also mentioned in my remarks, that it's also going to be very difficult for them to sort of loose loosen their hold on power. And a lot of the changes that we're talking about uh, imply that. Uh, To to the gentleman that asked questions earlier on the embassies, um, it is a relatively simple sort of transaction, that of exchanging diplomatic notes between the United States uh, and Cuba with the Swiss to change the status of the current arrangement, which is they have interest sections. Right. To change those into embassies. It's not like you need permission other than going through that process. That's one issue. And the other issue is that the regulations that were put forth by the U.S. Department uh, of Commerce and Treasury did not come as a result of a, uh, of a uh, negotiation. So uh, the points that you're seeing that the president put forth uh, were not negotiated there. They were. They were just shared with the Cubans. The issue now is the implementation of those points, and at what pace do they want to do that? The senator mentioned in his in his remarks they don't even have the capacity to do some of this, and that's another issue. Uh, you know, with increased airline traffic, I mean, I don't even know if they have the capacity for certain planes. Um, you know th- what you talked about sir earlier about you know some of the relationships that will have to take place uh, between the government for trade for other things do they have the right counterparts to deal with this I mean there are a series of issues now that the Cubans are going to have to deal with and I think they're slowing down because of political um, because of politics but as well as their lack of capacity to be able to do this
0: skip moving up There's...
2: Hi, uh, I'm Joe Kalman, and my question is, assuming uh, hypothetically that the that the current policy of, for lack of a better word, engagement with Cuba uh, remains constant, and in, a, let's say, in a few years, the Castro brothers uh, die, which I don't ever see Fidel, that happening to Fidel, um, what who fills that power? I mean, Mr. Meacham t- uh, touched upon this with the divided government in Cuba. Who fills that power vacuum?
1: You can in, give your guess. In I do mine. <laughs> no, in
2: theory, I think there, there's a vice president who, whose name escapes me right now, who's already been designated to come in when Raul Diaz right. Canal. Yeah. In theory, that's what 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 they're talking about. Um, we don't know uh, if 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 that is something you can take to the bank. You know, there's a lot of things as Senator said, uh, that can happen as a result of this process. Uh, I would be surprised, though, if in the next two years it looked like what it looks like today Mm -hmm. uh, as a result of all the things that that could happen. Uh, So I wouldn't try to guess, uh, but uh, what they've said is that the transition of power would, would come in, in 2018, I think it is? Yeah. To, the to their vice ends, president.
0: Yeah, the turning oh. it ends, and supposedly right. Miguel Diaz-Canel will be president, but we don't know. I don't know why we use the term president when we talk about Cuba, though. It's, it's a dictatorship, though. <laughs> uh, here, we're, we're going to keep moving.
2: Jim lowen sociologist. Uh, Good talk, good response. In fact,
0: I don't see how it's arguable. And so my question is, how come folks are arguing it? Well, The, the folks on the other side, you mentioned the refugee uh, mentality. That makes some sense.
2: Uh, and there's maybe the playing to the <coughs> refugees in your own state, that that interest group. But other than that, it it doesn't make much sense. Can you make sense out of the opposition?
1: <laughs> well, I, like Carl, and I think Carl said it very well, there are some who, you know, who have uh, obviously legitimate gripe with this government in Cuba? They, they lost their their homes, they lost their business, they lost family members, and uh, and that I I don't for a minute dismiss you know their concerns and their real loss. Uh, but a lot of it is uh, um, I, I think now that we've gone fifty years, in in one sense that tells I think most of us, man, it's been fifty years. Let's uh, try something different. But for some, we've got 50 years into this policy. Let's just wait a little longer. And it would be seen to be giving in now if, if we were to change policy. And it struck me, I was watching, uh, there, I saw a teaser uh, for a television show, I think last weekend, uh, about Cuba. It was a full hour by one of the news channels uh, because of the change policy. And uh, the, the ticker at the bottom, or the, the sub-headline, was Cuba how we lost the last battle of the Cold War <laughs> we the United States and I I just busted out laughing I mean here the, the, this is a regime that is traveling the last mile of communism in a 57 Chevy you know <laughs> and we somehow lost uh, but but that's kind of the the uh, that that's kind of the feeling of some that if we've Put so much into this, and that now we, you know, normalize relations. That somehow we've lost. And, and to me, it's a, it's a position of strength. It's not a weakness. It's not a concession to allow your own citizens to travel. It's not a concession to allow trade to happen. Uh, this is what strong countries do, not not what weak countries do.
0: Right here.
4: Thank you. I can't think of two better institutions to work together than Cato and CSIS, so (laughs) congratulations for the group. With the U.S. Senate, it even makes it better. Um, I just want to raise something for Senator Flake that you may not be familiar with, but it may be a kind of an initiative, makes sense, and you may want to mention it to some of your friends on the Finance Committee. The standard way we deal with wayward countries as they begin to move back in the system with our preference programs, as you know, we have a bunch of conditions, respect for rule of law, respect for U.S. property, and then we begin discussing, and even Russia, who lost, but even Russia got GSP back because they were moving down that path. However, for Cuba, we have an additional requirement. There was a senator many years ago, Senator Hawkins, they still remember her, but she had a fancy hairdo, from Florida And when we were doing the Caribbean Basin Initiative with President Reagan in 1984, she said, I don't ever want Cuba to be a member. So whereas any other country within the region can negotiate back and can fulfill the conditions, Cuba is not allowed. And one of the ideas that a few of us have been discussing, David Lewis and others, have been discussing among ourselves, if you want to send a signal, why don't you at least make it possible to designate Cuba? And then you have all that pressure and all the advantages that you would have in a normal negotiation. So we just put that on the table for you to think about and make some sense, you know, mention this and the Senator hatch and others. Thank you.
1: Well, well thank you. Thank you. We'll do.
0: Over here.
4: Uh, my
5: name is Sumar Chatterjee. Um, uh, Senator, I must congratulate you for taking uh, an honest an upright stand, which so very few people take, and the President doing it too. Uh, And I guess in U.S. Congress, uh, you are in minority, and I wonder why America has so many bad people running the country in Congress. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's really a shame. And from the vote in the United Nations, you mentioned it, showed that there were only two United States and Israel who were against uh, Cuba, rest of the world all overwhelmingly thought that U.S. was the guilty party in this relationship that has gone on for all these 50 years. And U.S. must, and talking about Guantanamo Bay, I, you know, as an objective party, I think U.S. is pissing on uh, Cuban soil and and desecrating it by using it to uh, have a torture center there and some of the worst human rights violations that have happened in recent times. Uh, and so given that U.S. situation, why don't we have more good people like you running this country? No, <laughs> no. Uh,
1: there are uh, you know, strongly held positions on this, and uh, I don't question the motives of anybody. Like I said, those who who argue most vociferously uh, against change in <coughs> policy uh, have uh, more of a history w- with Cuba and, and more uh, heartfelt, personal uh, you know, reasons for it, so I don't question that at all. There are a lot of good people in the U.S. Congress, there really are. Thank you, my name
5: is Ronald McLean from Bolivia. Uh, First, it seems that sometimes we forget that, except from the United States, all Europeans, Asians, Canadians, everybody can go to Cuba, mostly. So it doesn't seem to be such a big issue, uh, the fact that they are not exposed just to the American people. It would be very b- good for the American people to be able to go there. But I wonder if you have explored what has unleashed uh, among the population of Cuba the announcement of the normalization of diplomatic relationships because what I read is that there's great enthusiasm among the Cuban people in Cuba. So it has unleashed... a. Uh, uh, a force there that it may be having in its own, in its own dynamics.
1: Mm-hmm. I I hope to get uh, down there again soon, uh, but uh, uh, my last trip took 31 minutes on the ground there, so I haven't been able to gauge that. But from what I've seen uh, and from what others have reported, that certainly is the case. And uh, yes, there is uh, travel from you know virtually every other country, but uh, I think all of us recognize we have a pretty special relationship uh, culturally with Cuba and also geographically uh, to be, you know, the, the biggest, most important, uh, uh, most uh, economically uh, powerful country just 90 miles off the shore. That that makes a difference. Uh, it it really does. And, and it will going forward, I believe. Um, but uh, I do think that there's a lot of excitement. Uh, and, you know, f- having traveled there for, for over a decade now, you, you know, there's never been any real animosity from the man on the street, despite what you see in in official protests ginned up by the Cuban government, sometimes uh, ordinary Cubans uh, very much want a better relationship uh, with the United States. Uh, many of whom have personal and family ties uh, to people here, and uh, so that's that's what I see.
0: We have a question over here.
4: Thank you. My name is Jan Bates. I'm just a private citizen. Um, I'd like to ask uh, a follow-up to the question the gentleman asked in front of me. If you could pull the mic a little closer. Oh, yeah, is you that better? Thanks. I'd like to ask um, a follow-up to the question asked by the gentleman in front of me about tourism. Since we've had so much European tourism in the past decade or so, how come that hasn't achieved what we think... American tourism is going to achieve. I mean, why hasn't the regime opened up after that? And also the fact that we, we have many, many Cuban-Americans going back every year. Why are they not having the influence that, um, that, that you suggest uh, open tourism would have?
1: Sure. Carl will want to address this as well. Let sure. me just make two points. Um, um, I think, uh, uh, one, the travel of Cuban-Americans back to the island has made a tremendous difference. Um, And that's one thing that I mentioned. Traveling Cuba over the last couple of years, uh, I've I've never had the sense before that some of the reforms that the government has put in place uh, were going to be lasting. Uh, But the reforms in terms of uh, private sector activity and and shrinking the public workforce and allowing people to have barbershops and uh, restaurants outside, that seems a lot more irreversible now as a direct result of... Investment uh, and travel by Cuban Americans and families. It, the investment has been significant there. And so I, I wouldn't dismiss that. And, and also, uh, th- there's no guarantee that uh, travel for tourism or any other purpose is going to change this Cuban government. I think all of us have tried to make that clear. We just have a better chance that that will happen. But uh, there is a special relationship culturally and. Geographically, I've often said that if we really want to get tough policy with Cuba, we ought to make the Castro brothers deal with spring break just once or twice. <laughs> <You> know, just, <laughs> that would <laughs> that would serve them
2: right. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> we have the questions over there. I, I don't know. Is, uh, it's add, a, yeah, oh, just that
2: I mean, the, the other thing is that the travel to the island has been pretty much limited uh, to Cuban Americans or Cubans who have. Um, family members on the Cuban side, right? And there is obviously the categories that the Treasury Department allows for different, you know, interests, that being scientific, et cetera. The issue with Senator's bill is that he's opening it up for everybody. So there's no limitation on who's going down. Uh, but Europe's not 90 miles away. So that's one issue. It doesn't share the same cultural sort of affinity that we have for each other. Uh, the other issue is trade. I mean, the United States is is hampered right now. We're the sure we're the biggest trader of agricultural goods, but once you start opening this up to technology, once you start opening it up to a whole series of things, I mean, it, it, it the flood could be overwhelming, and with that comes a desire for a better standard of life. Uh, let me tell you, I when I was in Cuba in two thousand nine, I went to this 23rd and G streets where all of the sort of young hip sort of cubans would hang out and how are the young hip cubans dressed they're they're reading when they can get like copies of magazines like people and and and, and this sort of thing they're trying to get music and they get the the you know the information that this the sticks the computer um you know, flash drives art, the drives the sticks and they're getting it from, and they trade them And they exchange stuff. So imagine when those young kids, and I think the generation here where you're going to see the most shift and where something really can happen as far as changing attitudes in a way that is meaningful to change on that island, is the youth. So when they have access to the way of life that we have here or something much closer, imagine all the rock bands that are going to go to Cuba now. Uh, I mean... they won't be able to control it. The government cannot have the kind of hold and control that it's had on these things uh, in the past. And when they decide to close it down, because that's going to come too, people now are going to demand to have access to these things that, they, that didn't before. And I think that's the process that we're talking about here. That's why the U.S.'s ability to be involved the way that we're proposing is,
0: can be a game-changer. I remember a Metallica concert in the Red Square, in the Soviet Union. That's right, and, then and late the, in the and then
2: Paul McCartney. And and
0: sure. We have two final questions over there, two gentlemen.
3: David Sobelston, Washington, DC. I'd like to know if you have any sense of how this is gonna play out in next year's presidential election.
1: Well, <laughs> Carl, come on. <laughs> uh, well, one thing is, uh, I, I think, you know, what. let me back up a bit. When I t- tried to uh, lift the travel ban early on, I uh, went to the White House uh, several times and met with Carl Rove. And he would always say and the first time he said, it's F L O R D. I mean, you would spell out it's Florida politics. I mean, that was the kind of an article of faith among Republicans <laughs> is you can't do this, and and that may have been the case at one time. It no longer is. Uh, in the last elections, it just uh, went through. I, I think you'd be hard pressed uh, to say that the uh, position on Cuba policy uh, made a definitive difference in the mayor. Or the, I'm sorry, the governor's race there, or any other. So. I I think in the past, most Republican candidates and Democratic candidates uh, for president in Florida really held to the current policy. I don't think anybody f- feels an, an electoral reason to do that anymore.
0: You don't want
3: to?
1: Yeah, he wants to. Come on. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I think it's going to I think it's going to. Uh, it obviously plays a role um, on the local level in different places, and, and you know this, sir, because you've done so many campaigns, that obviously it plays a role in electoral politics. But I do agree that nationally, it doesn't have the same sort of weight that it did in past cycles. And and, and that, I think, has freed up a lot of members on both sides of the aisle to now have uh, a position on this issue or, or to open up the discussion or to be more receptive to different positions or different approaches in dealing with Cuba. And I think that that's progress.
0: Last but not least important.
3: Okay, Um, thank you. Thanks for the forum today, fellas. Uh, Carl, I will join uh, the remarks of uh, one of the fellows on the other side and saying it's great to see you here at uh, Cato. You are indeed one of the bright stars in um, Dr. Hamry's constellation over there at uh, CSIS. So much obliged. Um, could you guys take a look at the uh, the role of the Holy Father in this conflict? Carl, the man has very intimate familiarity with um, hemisphere politics. Senator, he's going to be speaking to you and your crew uh, in the Senate and the House later on this year. So could you give a survey to the extent that you guys know what role he played? And uh, for you specifically, Senator, uh, you come from a pretty colorful state. Uh, there are a number of people on either uh, side of the immigration reform issues. So could you give us a survey of how likely it is uh, for the Senate and the House to vote out a viable immigration reform bill uh, that the president will sign. And your feelings on the matter today. Thanks.
1: I thought we'd avoided immigration for one (laughs) far No, no, that's fine. Uh, On the first one, uh, what uh, the role of the Pope uh, in these negotiations, the Catholic Church, uh, significant. Um, As you know, he he pressed the issue with uh, President Obama um, earlier, the uh, the seventy five dissidents who were detained I think it was two thousand four or three um, that it was uh, the Archbishop uh, Ortega uh, who really helped negotiate um, and work to have them released so the Catholic Church has played a significant role in this uh, with regard to immigration I as you know I've I've pushed for comprehensive immigration reform I think the president's uh, action uh, on immigration has made it difficult for a comprehensive bill to move through. And it was always difficult in the House, but it would be even difficult in the Senate now among my party. So I think that it'll, if we are to see legislation move, it will be piecemeal It 'll be a border bill, then maybe a guest worker bill, then maybe a bill to deal with those who are here illegally. I hope we can do that i 'm uh but it will have to happen soon because as we get closer to the presidential campaign, it becomes. Uh, far more difficult.
2: Um, on immigration, I think um, the person that posed the question on how uh, Cuba would uh, affect the presidential politics, I think the real issue is how immigration will will affect presidential politics. I think this is an issue that um, on our side of the aisle uh, is something that we have to deal with. Um, uh, so I think that's that's one issue, um, and I think your approach of comprehensive immigration reform is, is the right approach too. So uh, on on the president's, I mean, on the uh, Pope, uh, and and this uh, and his participation here, I think that that really uh, sort of solidified and, and made it very sort of acceptable to different parties uh, that probably would have been a lot more skeptical uh, in, in in accepting. Uh, this policy shift. Uh, I think that the Pope uh, is making a really big mark in so far as politics in the region. I think it was yesterday that he mentioned his uh, interest uh, or support for, uh, was it um, M- Romero? Uh, Their Bishop uh, yeah, Oscar Romero. Oscar Romero, and I think they're thinking about uh, making him a saint, yeah. is that the case? Uh, so there's a lot of things going on with the Pope and his involvement in regional uh, politics and policy that I think is affecting uh, the way that um, different policymakers in the U.S. Uh, view the region, and it's factoring into to their decisions. Uh, and I think that's, that's, a, that's an important contribution.
0: Well, thank you, Carr, and thank you, Senator Flake, uh, uh, and thank you for for coming to this event. We have a light luncheon upstairs, uh, so you're uh, you're welcome to join us. But please, for, before the going, uh, let me uh, thank again the, both speakers for for their interventions today.